One of my favorite movie musicals growing up was Annie. How many people, I'm guessing a lot of you have seen Annie? Show of hands. I'm not going to judge you if you haven't seen it, but Annie, pretty well known, pretty common. And while the 2014 remake was pretty well done, being a child of the 70s, it was the 1982 Annie with Carol Burnett, Albert Finney, and the crazy red afro Annie. That's the Annie that I grew up with. But whichever story you grew up with, whichever version, the story of a baby girl left outside this, uh, the steps of an orphanage with nothing but a memento from her parents, maybe it's uh, the locket or the note, whatever it is, promising her that she's gonna, they're going to come back for her, that story remains the same regardless of which version you know. And while we eventually learn that Annie's parents have died, actually, and they won't be coming back for her, the, the plot twist of the story, if you've seen this, is a wealthy billionaire who rescues Annie out of the orphanage and takes her into his home. Now, of course, yes, initially he does this mostly just to kind of build up his, his public image because he's seen as kind of a jerk. Uh, but by the end of the film, I'm sorry if this is a spoiler alert, you don't want to plug your ears, but by the end of the film, he has come to truly love Annie and adopts her, takes her in as his own daughter into his home, adopts her functionally, making an orphan into the heiress of his entire enterprise. But consider this. Just think of this scenario. Let's say Daddy Warbucks or Mr. Stacks, if you're more used to the 2014 version, let's say he comes in and, and rescues Annie out of the orphanage, which we now know she wouldn't have been able to accomplish otherwise. There's no parents coming back. But he doesn't also adopt her. Has he not also like already done a really great thing for her, which she couldn't have done for herself? I think we'd agree. Yeah, he, he has done something really great for her if he just rescues her out of the orphanage. Because if you've seen the films, you know the orphanage that Annie is, is held in is, is basically it's a prison house of Charles Dickens proportions. But what I think we'd also agree is that what makes this story so truly extra extraordinary fills up our our hearts in such amazing ways is because not only does this man of incalculable wealth free Annie from her captivity in an orphanage, he also welcomes her into his home as a daughter with all the rights and privileges of a child that was born to him naturally. And as we continue in this series this morning entitled In the Fullness of Time and dig in deeper into this passage, which I've said is ultimately kind of like Christmas according to Galatians, along with the supplementary passage in Matthew's gospel, what I'm praying will fill up your hearts this morning even more. What, what you'll see as infinitely more extraordinary is the incredible truth of Christmas. Namely, that when God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law when the time had fully come 2,000 years ago, he sent him not only to rescue us from our slavery to sin and death, which would have been an extraordinary enough thing on its own, he also sent Jesus to make a way for our adoption, that we might receive the full rights as sons, as Paul says here in Galatians. Now, we're going to get into why it is that Paul only says we're adopted as sons in particular, and not sons and daughters. That's kind of important. seems like a problem. I mean, we've even sung uh, hymns this morning, like, good Christian men rejoice. It seems very, like, gender non-inclusive here. And we're kind of like, what about the women? Why does he just say adopted as sons? We're going to get into that problem as we go through this, but I think what I see as the biggest problem with this whole concept of adoption and God adopting us is not 
only that adoption is this essential aspect of our salvation that we rarely even consider. We, we hardly even talk about it. But it's also an aspect of our salvation that although legally true, is also rarely experienced as true by us as those who've been adopted into God's family. What I mean by that is we don't really think of our salvation in categories like this. We think of we're rescued from sin and slavery, which is true. We don't think of it in terms of like, but we've been adopted. We've been adopted into God's family. And not only is that true, even if we do understand that we don't know how to relate to God as Father, what does that mean now that I relate to God as Father? And sometimes when we think about it, we don't even really want to relate to Him that way at the end of the day. So in order to help us understand this incredible, often overlooked truth about God's adoption of us, as well as how and why we should relate to Him as our Father, I want to look at this passage this morning in just three ways. I want to talk about the process of our adoption, the cost of our adoption, and then finally, the experience of our adoption. We'll, we'll close with that final piece. So the process, the cost, and the experience of our adoption. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage? We'll start with Matthew's gospel there. Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. Follow along with me as we look now at this next reason about Paul, what Paul has said about why God sent his son born of a woman in the fullness of time. Okay, so let's look first of all at the process of adoption. The process of adoption. Now, my wife and I, we've, we've never walked through a process of adoption personally ourselves, but we've had close friends go through it in the past. And, of course, now as a church family, we're praying along with Peter and Livia as they're walking through that process, and we're so excited for you guys. But uh, what, we, what, I, what I've seen and learned as I've watched this and talked with people as they're going through it is that the process is both very extensive it's a really extensive process, which I think it should be. And it's also really expensive. It can be very expensive. And we can debate the pros and cons about whether or not that should or should not be. And we're going to talk about the costs of our adoption in a minute uh, when we get to that part. But as you think about God's adoption of us, there's also an extensive process that God has to go through in order to make that adoption come about, to be able to, for it to be able to take place. And it may seem like an obvious point, but... What's important to see, first of all, and what we see in this passage in Matthew's gospel, is that in order to wake up, make a way for us to be adopted, the first thing, the first step in the process that has to happen is Jesus has to come. That's, that's the first step in the process. He has to actually come, which means Jesus must have, at some point in eternity past, which we don't know when, must have said, uh, as we read in Hebrews 10, quoting uh, Psalm 40, he must have said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. He knew he had to come, and that would be part of the process. This is, as we mentioned a few times already in this series, is a reality that's powerfully presented to us in Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul writes this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. There's that, the body you have prepared for me. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
giving him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Which if you were to lay that like a template over our passage in Galatians 4, that, that home base passage that we're looking to, gives us kind of these different pieces of the process. God's sending of the Son, born of a woman, that, that's one part of the process. He has to, has to actually come. But then, being born under the law, he has to be born into this, uh, underness, this mosaic law, and then he has to uh, bring about the redemption purchased through his substitutionary death on the cross to free us from that condemnation, which, of course, all that together, that's, it's really just nothing more than a brief flyover of, of all the process that God has to walk through. Of course, uh, in order for us to receive the rights as sons, as Paul says, Jesus has a much more extensive process as he has to live this out day by day uh, through his whole time here on earth. But when it comes to the coming of Jesus as a baby to earth initially, one of the things we often don't also consider and don't give a great deal of consideration to, but that Matthew talks about here, is this. It's that the one who came to make a way for our adoption by God must first be adopted as a son himself by an earthly father. You ever thought about that? The one who's come to make a way for our adoption has to first be adopted. And as you could see when we read through that passage in Matthew, it, that, that, uh, that adoption involved a pretty extensive process as well, didn't it? Extensive in that it involved a, a teenage pregnancy. It involved all, all the kind of hurt and drama that, that it came about in what appeared to be a, an, an adulterous scandal, a painful, quiet divorce that was about to happen. All to be then had to be another part. that an angel had to come and be like, no, 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 don't. It's okay. Mary, take Mary home. Like they, they, this family had to go through a lot. Uh, a very extensive, complicated process in order to get to the place where Joseph did finally take Mary home to be his wife, which in doing so, and as well as that process of naming his son, giving him the name Jesus, clearly indicated Joseph had taken responsibility now of Jesus as his own son. And we know that as well. That's confirmed to us later on in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we all see uh, Jesus comes to his hometown. And what do people say of him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? He was recognized and known as this son of Joseph. And when you're just at the very beginning stages of the adoption process, I'm told uh, a social worker, the agency that you're working with, they sit down with you and they talk you through the process. They walk you through, this is what adoption looks like. I'm told there's actually a, a three-day training process they take you through. All kinds of different things to give you the clearest picture possible about just how extensive, how involved the whole process of adoption is going to be. They really want you to understand what you're entering into. And for some people, once they've done that, once they, they consider the time, the interviews, the, the travel, home inspections, all these different things, when they consider the whole process involved, they, they're like, no, actually, I can't, I can't do that. They check out right there because they know they're either unable or unwilling to walk through the process of adoption. But whether it's the process that Joseph went through in order to adopt Jesus or the cosmos shifting process that Jesus went through in order to bring about or make a way for us to be adopted as sons, what I think you'll see consistently in both of these accounts is that these individuals, they, they see the process fully in front of them. They look it right in the face. They know what it is they're walking into and still say, 
here I am. I've come to do your will, O oh God. They, they, they willingly walk into the process that God has called them to, knowing fully what to expect. They say, yes, I'm willing to do that. Now, don't, don't, don't minimize that and say, well, yeah, okay, 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 because it's the Bible. Of course, they just willingly followed the process that God gave them. No, don't do that, because there's all kinds of places in the Bible where people totally don't follow through on the process that God gives to them. Think of Moses' initial response when God calls him, deliver my, I want you to deliver my people out of, out of Egypt. What is his response? Send somebody else. Does that sound like willingly walking through the process? No. He saw what it was and was like, uh-uh. Or think about Peter's actual response, above and beyond his promise to follow through, even if all others fall away. When he's presented with the process of standing by Jesus through his arrest and interrogation, eventual crucifixion, I tell you, I don't even know the man. Truth is, many of us, in fact, probably at some point, all of us fall away. We, we, we give up. We don't even begin the process that we feel God's calling us to because it looks too complicated. It looks too hard. It's going to be way too much work and effort. And so we're just like, you know, I, I don't think, no, I, I don't, I don't want to walk into this, God. There's all kinds of circumstances that, that, that God presents us with that we're just like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that God's calling me to that, or that's just too much. Maybe your, your marriage is deeply struggling, and you're just like, I don't know how, nah, I can't, that's just, it's just going to be too involved. Maybe you find out before your child is born that they're going to have some kind of developmental disability. Maybe God's called you to actually literally adopt a child, and you feel God's call in your heart, but you know what the process is going to look like, and you're just like, that's going to be a lot of work. I don't, it might just be easier to just take this path. I don't think I can do that. There's all kinds of ways we do that. But I wonder if considering the way that Jesus willingly entered into what he knew was going to be a 33-plus a year-long process, starting as a, a fetus, becoming a, a toddler, then having to be like a puberty going through teenager, that in itself is a huge cost. And then, following through to a, a, a arrest, brutal beating, horrific death, all in order that you, to redeem you, to redeem me, that, that, that you and I would be able to be adopted by God. He saw that whole process and willingly walked into it. I wonder if considering that shouldn't help inspire or encourage you to continue on in whatever process, which maybe seems really hard right now, to keep pressing on in the same way that he pressed on for you, or considering that maybe it ought to convict some of us who stopped, who've checked out, or maybe haven't even started the process because it seemed like it was going to be too hard. Think about what the process Jesus willingly entered into for you. It should change the way we view those things. I think it should, particularly when you consider we haven't even looked yet at what our adoption costs. So let's do that. Let's do that now. We've, we've talked about the process of our adoption. Let's look now at the cost of our adoption. The cost of our adoption. Now, it's important to pause and note here, while I keep using the term adoption, the, the, the literal Greek term here in, if you want to flip over to that Galatians passage, Galatians 4 now, the literal term, huiothesia, uh, that Paul, he, Paul alone uses this Greek term and, and elsewhere in the New Testament. And while it refers to adoption... The, the word literally means placed as sons. 
That's what the word literally means, to be placed as sons. That's why some of your uh, translations will have uh, that verse 5 listed as that we might receive the adoption as sons. Whereas the New International Version, which we're using here, says we receive the rights as sons. And then down in verse 7, that we be made fellow heirs. It's, it's using the language of adoption for both. But really the term means to be placed as sons. And just to quickly try and solve that problem which we presented, if you're still wondering, well, what about the thing about the sons? Can we go back and just talk about that for a second? Uh, uh, the, the reason Paul is being so incredibly non-21st century PC, non-gender inclusive in this particular verse here, it's because, very simply, in a first century context, a, a daughter, even a naturally born daughter, would have no rights as an heir to her father's property. That's just, uh, we, we're not making any judgment, uh, right or wrong, that's just how it was in this first century context where Paul is writing. So, just to put it in context for us, if, if Annie is adopted by Daddy Warbucks in the first century and he dies, she's getting squat. She gets nothing. She probably just gets cast out and who knows what happens to her. That's why we can't, as much as we want to include everyone, which we are, we can't force a sons and daughters onto this passage in particular, as some modern translations have mistakenly tried to do, because it actually makes the whole metaphor fall apart, because daughters don't receive an inheritance. So if, if you're willing to work with me on this, just the same way that us men, we got to deal with being the bride of Christ, uh, women, I'm sorry, you're going to have to deal with being adopted as sons. That's just the way the Bible presents it to us. But what's also important to note is that while Paul's theology of adoption is distinctly rooted in God's covenant choosing of his people Israel, the practice of adoption, which he's using as a salvation metaphor, actually has, is, is a Greco-Roman practice, not a Jewish one. Primarily a Greco-Roman practice. And yet when you understand how the Greeks and the Romans practiced adoption, you'll see very quickly why it is that Paul latches on to this idea for a metaphor that talks about God's saving work of us. For historians tell us when the way this was practiced in Rome, one clear example is when uh, a ruler or an emperor had no legal heir who could take over his throne when he was about to die, he would adopt a son into his family legally, and then that son would now carry on his royal rule and lineage going forward. And hopefully he would have some sons that would just correct the process. That's how they used adoption, or one clear example. Well, listen to how uh, one author, Francis Lyle, uh, speaks about how adoption took place in a book he wrote called Slave Citizens and Sons. He says this, the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of a son to his new father. All of his old debts were instantly canceled, and in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of a new family. On the one hand, the new father owned all the new offspring's property, controlled his personal relationships, had the rights of discipline. But on the other hand, the father was liable for the actions of the adoptee, and each owed the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. You can see pretty clearly why Paul would latch onto that as a salvation metaphor. What happens to us when God saves us. So, so in the adoption process, there were risks and benefits to both parties in the adoption process in the Greco-Roman world, just as there are today. But when you consider that one sentence in particular, where it says, all of the adoptee's debts were instantly canceled, that means to adopt this child, any debt he had, you had to take it on to yourself. So then just considering that, along with uh, investment of time, Certainly other finances, emotional resources that would have been included in an adoption 
then and which we absolutely know is part of the adoption process today. But that, as that relates to our discussion now, I think that should make us immediately start to think of both the great cost involved in our adoption as well as the redemption that Jesus paid under the law in order to make our adoption possible. That should start to bring that, that thinking up into our minds. And beyond the financial costs for your adoption, as Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Beyond the, the cost to his glory and majesty, which we just looked at in Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. What we know from God's word is that the ultimate cost paid for our adoption was the perfect, sinless life of the Son of God. That was the cost paid for your adoption. As Isaiah so powerfully recounts in Isaiah 53, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. What I've learned about the adoption process today is that it is financially costly, yes, but it also can be relationally costly in all kinds of different ways too. Not at all something that you just walk into lightly and, and enter into casually, regardless of the innumerable joys and benefits that also come for, for, for families who have welcomed children into their family through adoption. It doesn't discount any of that, but there are costs involved to bring it about. And I don't know about you, but when I reflect on the cost of Jesus coming to earth, can't even truly get my mind around the cost that he would pay to redeem me. To make a, a slave like me into a son. To make a, 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 a rebel like me, someone who was not loving him, not seeking him, into an heir with all rights and privileges of a son, that he would pay that cost for me and for you. Ephesians 2 tells us it's going to take the coming ages to even begin to get a concept, the smallest hint of all that that means of what he did for us and his grace towards us. And we'll dig into this more deeply in a moment when we talk about the experience of our adoption, but although it's worthy of a lifetime, a lifetime of contemplation and honor, I wonder if just for this moment here in our gathering this morning as God's people, in the same way that we pause for a minute in honor of men and women who gave their lives paid the cost for our freedom that we enjoy as a country on Remembrance Day. I wonder if we couldn't make space right now for just silent worship and contemplation, just right here in this moment, to pause and, and wonder at the great love with which God lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. 
to, to ponder the depth and the magnitude of the sacrifice in his coming at Christmas, both to purchase your redemption under the law at great cost to himself, but also to secure your adoption as a son. Let's do that right now. I just want to take a minute to pause, reflect, and give thanks for the great cost that was paid for our adoption. Let's do that right now. process of our adoption and the cost of our adoption. As we close this morning, I want to look at just finally the experience of our adoption. The experience of our adoption. I want to look at this because, as I said when we began, not only is the doctrine of adoption something we rarely consider or even really think about as it relates to our salvation, it also carries all kinds of implications that we don't often consider as well, which can limit our experience of God's adoption or cause us to recoil from it, or, or really to, to miss it all, uh, completely. Because again, if Paul is applying the concept of adoption metaphorically to how our salvation works, something else that we haven't yet considered is the difficult transition that takes place in a family once a child has been adopted. Think about what happens to a child once they're adopted into a family. There's a, there's a huge transition that needs to take place once that happens. It's not always to the same level. Sometimes it can be easier, sometimes incredibly harder. I know some families that have described the transition process with child and family much like an organ transplant, something that's incredibly dangerous, precarious uh, to both parties. Uh, uh, a lot of adjustment has to take place, and if one party decides to reject the other, it can be incredibly damaging to everyone involved. Which is just to say this. Our transition from orphan and slave to son and heir is also a very challenging transition that needs to take place no matter how loving, no matter how perfect the intentions of the Father for us in adopting us. The transition is, is difficult. It's, it's hard for us to transition to this new role as sons, ad adopted sons of God. What does that look like? Consider an example from Russell Moore who describes the transition that had to take place with his two adopted sons that he and his wife adopted from Russia. He writes, when my, my wife Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over, we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons. 
we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits my parents had bought for them. We, we nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They'd never heard the sound of a car door slamming or the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles an hour down a road. I noticed they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. You told me you knew what's waiting for you. A home with a mom and a dad who love you. Grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's, Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference point. It was home. He goes on, we knew the boys had acclimated to our home that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. And in light of that, and, and especially when we're, we're new and early on in our faith, I wonder if the reason we don't truly give as much attention and thought to our adoption is not even because we don't understand the theology behind it, which could also be true. But because we're much more comfortable with God as a redeemer than we are with him as a father. We're much more comfortable with God, redeemer, than God as a father. It's like, think back to that analogy we began with. It's almost like what we really want is we prefer if God would just free us out of the orphanage, but then kind of leave us to make our lives for ourselves. Why? Well, because a, a rescuer and a father are both profoundly different relationships, right? They carry a lot of different expectations with them. And along with that, there's, there's a lot of implications that happen as you transition into a whole new family. It's completely new. It's foreign to you. As you try to understand what does it mean, just, just as those Russian twins had to make a huge adjustment to new life outside of the orphanage. What does it look like now? What does it look like to have a father that cares for me? It wasn't just a snap, it's done. It took time. Not to mention the fact that our previous ways of operating before God saved us that are ingrained into our very way of being many times are in direct conflict with the house rules that God would like us to live by for our good and for our joy. We're not used to it. It's new. And the transition can be very hard. As a result, as pastor and author Tim Keller says so well, our experience of our salvation can then remain limited because you have the legal status of being adopted as a son, but you don't have the experience of it. So just go back with me. Go back one last time to that analogy we began with of Annie at the beginning because uh, that has such an amazing part to it as well. If you recall, if you've seen the, the film or the plays, Annie's reaction when she's brought into for the first time what would become her father's house and sings that song, I think I'm going to like it here. Remember that? 
Because if you've seen that before, you remember with each new benefit, each new experience that she can now have because she's in this house, each new room and hallway and, and dinner table and swimming pool and tennis courts, each time she experiences these new things, it's new people, it's new environment, it's new all these things, it's unfamiliar to her, and yet her reaction again and again is, really? This is mine now? I, I get all this? And what I want to submit to you is that that is the experience of adoption that your father intends for you to have. That's how he wants you to experience it. That's, 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 that's a part of what he intended in his saving you. Because what the doctrine of adoption shows you is that God's desire wasn't just to free you from slavery and condemnation. Under the law, his desire is to be in relationship with you. He wanted to restore the broken relationship with you. That as you come to know God as your Father in heaven through Jesus, and then you come to learn more and more what that means through his word, through prayer, through, through the gathering of his people, that you'll come to see that, that, that what God has done in saving you is he's not just taking you out for an expensive dinner and then paid the check. He's made a space for you at his dinner table. He hasn't just taken off your rags and dressed you in royal robes. He's given you a room with a closet full of clothes that you're to live in now. He hasn't just written a check to pay your bail and get you out of prison. He's written you into his will as a full beneficiary. But Kellis writes elsewhere, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Really think about it. Really, really think about that in this whole Christmas celebration. Let it, let it really touch your heart as you think about it and consider it. And, and this Jesus laid in a lowly manger and all that that means, that the God of the universe, the creator of all things visible and invisible, so loved the world, John 3.16 tells us, that when the time had fully come, he sent his son, Emmanuel, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, willingly submitting himself to both the process as well as paying the full cost for your adoption. Why? So that you and I might receive the full rights as sons. Wow. And as you consider that this Christmas and as you carry that from this place through the rest of the celebration, my prayer along with the Apostle Paul is this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Amen.